Our passage today is right at the beginning of Titus, Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. I'll give you a second to find it in your Bibles. It's at page 1198 in your church Bibles. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by command of, by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the truthworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Now, I wonder, are you a glass half empty or a glass half full kind of a person? Are you an optimist or a pessimist? Are you hopeful about the future or feeling rather hopeless? I must confess to you this evening that a few uh, weeks ago I had uh, one of those uh, glass half empty uh, moments. It was the end of a busy week. I was sitting in the car. And I promise this is true. I started thinking about the economy. I started thinking about the war in Ukraine. I started thinking about the state of British politics, the pressures the NHS were under, the disappointment that I feel in the Church of England, the size of the British Armed Forces. I just felt rather hopeless. Old misery guts me. And then much closer to home, I started thinking about the pressure on our family finances. I started thinking about the challenges that our teenagers and teenagers generally are facing as they're growing up in these days. I started thinking about the fact that we'd lost three good friends to cancer in just the past two years. I had one of those hopeless moments. And I'm sure you've had those times too. And yet, as we begin this summer series in the letter of Titus, we come across this phrase both in chapter 1, verse 2, and in chapter 3, verse 7, that goes like this. Have a look at verse 2 of our reading. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life. Titus uh, is the name that Paul is writing this letter to. Uh, We see that at the start of verse 4. The the date that the letter is first written is about 55-60 AD. Uh, And Titus is a church planter uh, in Crete. And this, therefore, is a a personal letter from the master Paul to the apprentice Titus. 
But don't worry, we're not being overly nosy, as it is intended this letter to be read by others. Just glance to the very last sentence of the letter, chapter 3, verse 15, and we read there this phrase, grace be with you all. It's a plural. A letter in the first instance to a friend, but with the intention uh, that it would be read by all, both by others in this church in Crete, uh, but also further afield and down through the ages. And Titus, he too is battling hard times, hopeless times. We'll come on to it a bit more next week, but Titus is facing a really vocal group within his church. We read about them in verses 10 to 16 of chapter 1. And this group were causing absolute havoc in St. Mary's Crete, or whatever it's called. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 11, have a look there. Quite literally, they were ruining whole households and families by what they were teaching. And it seems that they've polluted that the wonderful news of the love of God offered through the death of his son Jesus for the sins of the world, and they've replaced grace with a fake, false religion, a sort of mixture of Jewish law-keeping and who knows what else, all for the sake, we read, of financial profits. Friends, beware of the preacher who speaks often about money. And as Paul writes this letter to Titus, he's going to give some quite specific and clear instructions. But essentially, the snapshot picture of these three chapters, the overall theme, uh, is this. He's writing to Titus and saying, look, to establish a church that cherishes, this is what you're to do, establish a church that cherishes God's truth, By teaching God's truth, for it's by God's truth the church will be transformed. And a helpful way, uh, helpful way to remember what Titus is all about. It's all about the T's. It's all about the T's. So Titus is about teaching the truth for transformation. Imagine trying to say that if you have dentures. Titus is about teaching the truth for transformation. But possibly, as you're sitting here this evening, uh, you might be thinking that teaching the truth, well, that sounds all rather cerebral and a little bit academic, remote from what I'm experiencing in my life today. But as we shall see, it's not, for it's through being taught and transformed by the truth that you and I, we can experience the hope of eternal life. But before we begin, we need to be clear what eternal life is. So please would you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 17. It's page 1085. We're only going to do one cross-reference this evening, and it's this one. John chapter 17 and verse 3. I think it's page 1085 in the church Bibles. It's a really important verse. It'll be familiar to many of us. We read these words. He says, now this, Jesus speaking, is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus, you'll see from the context, he's praying to his father. And in this divine conversation overheard by the apostle John, Jesus declares what eternal life is. Do you see, it's knowing God. It's a relationship so fundamental to who we are as human beings that that begins now and then lasts for all eternity. 
Have a look at the verse again. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Now, to be known by someone is deeply significant. In Bible terms, it's, it's to have the most deepest, the most deep, the most secure, the most intimate relationship with someone that is possible. In fact, it's the word that's used in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, of when Adam and Eve had sex together. Sorry to use that word without a health warning. Everyone looks up and feels a bit awkward. But it is that word, Genesis 4, verse 1, that they knew one another. And that is what Jesus declares eternal life to be. That, that you and I, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we can know God. Known by God, with all our faults and all our failings, and yet freely forgiven through his Son. And it's this intimate relationship with God, through Jesus Christ, that gives us hope. The hope of eternal life. Yes, that totally transforms our future, life beyond the grave. But it also transforms our presence from being the hopeless to the hopeful. Come with me back to Titus 1. We've just got two headings this evening as we're going to consider the first nine verses of the letter together. I'm going to have to go quite quickly. Do do put your questions in the chat and I'll try my best, or grab me afterwards, and we can talk further. Two headings. The first is this, the confidence that Titus is to know, and this is verses 1 to 4, and then second, the commission that Titus is to fulfill, verses 5 to 9. But let me read from verse 1 again, the confidence that Titus is to know. So Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect... And the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our saviour. Titus and Paul, they they actually knew knew each other really quite well. They'd worked together on various missions. They traveled together. They were familiar with one another's ministries. And yet, still, Titus needed to be reminded of the authority with which Paul writes the letter. So have a look at verse 1. Paul describes himself there first as a servant of God. So he's one who's humble enough to know that he's been bought, he's now owned, he's now being directed by God. But one we read on who was also an apostle of Jesus Christ. One who therefore speaks God's message with God's authority. If you're visiting us this evening or if you're new to the things of the Christian faith, the the apostles, they were the twelve chosen by Jesus, plus Paul, who were this unique band of men who had received a sort of personal call, commission, and authorization to be Christ's inspired messengers. And it would be their teaching that becomes the foundation of the church. 
Now, if you're a regular here at St. Mary's, uh, we've spent a lot of time with the Apostle Paul in recent Sundays. We've been traveling through the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians 6. And that there is, there is a, a danger that, that we become a little bit overly familiar with the Apostle Paul. Familiarity breeds contempt. But Paul, we must remember, is an apostle. Therefore, the words we have recorded for us here are the words that Jesus wanted Paul to speak. And as we read and study and apply and wrestle with the words of Titus in the coming Sundays, we must remember these are the the words of Christ to his bride, the church. And some of them are going to be really difficult for us because they're pretty countercultural. But we must read and digest and put into practice. For as we read on, the importance of these words could not be greater. Have a look at verse 1 again. For the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life. The faith of God's people. That's what the elect means. God's chosen people. It's a slightly funny Bible word, but don't be put off by it. The elect are God's chosen people. And the knowledge of the truth that they've received in the gospel. They are all the divine means by which ordinary people like us here this evening can know God and experience eternal life. Faith, knowledge, hope, that they are all words that convey a dynamic, relational dynamic, that me- the means by which God's people come into the closest possible relationship with him. And in the midst of false teaching and a really anti-Christian gritty culture, chapter 1, verse 12, Titus was to know that it is by faith in God and knowledge of his truth that God's people, we can remain hopeful as we are being divinely transformed. Notice the end of verse 1. It's really important. The knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. Titus is all about teaching the truth for transformation in God's people. And it's this hope of eternal life, this prospect of transformed lives, as the truth of God works through our heads, into our hearts, and outwardly into our lives in the presence. That hope it is given a, a wonderful threefold guarantee of taking place because of the one who gives it. So have a look at verses two and three. First, we see God, He promised it before time. It's always been part of his eternal purpose for his people. Second, it's given by the God who who made the promise, who who doesn't lie. Sadly, we all lie. The Cretans, the Cretans, they were notorious liars, verse 12. But God, he doesn't lie, never lies. And third, this same trustworthy God who made this promise has at his appointed time brought his word to light through the preaching of the gospel, verse 3. Do you see the promise, the character, and the gospel of God, a threefold guarantee that God's people, you and I here this evening, who trust in Jesus, we might, this evening, tomorrow, this week ahead, we might experience lives transformed with a sure and certain hope of eternal life. That is the confidence that Titus was to know it's the confidence that we're to have. 
Uh, I'm not too sure how many of you are learning to drive in this room this evening. I guess a number of people. Uh, When a 17-year-old or 18-year-old is learning to drive a car, it can be quite a nerve-wracking time, can't it, for both the uh, the 17-year-old, the learner, and the instructor. In our household, we've recently learned the lesson that wing mirrors don't like being introduced to wheelie bins, even when traveling at just 20 miles an hour. Anyway, what we've learned also in our house, a much more pleasant way to learn to drive is to pay a driving instructor to sit in the car. I do, I do recommend them. Uh, there might be driving instructors here this evening who will do us a deal, possibly. I don't know. Um, you see, with a driving instructor, they've seen it all before. Uh, they've got the dual controls. They've got the knowledge of what will be examined in the test. All the learner driver needs to do is trust in their instructor. So Paul the Apostle, the instructor, writes to Titus, the learner, and declares to him and to us this evening that God, he is utterly sufficient for our faith and the knowledge of the truth that leads to the hope of eternal life. Have confidence that God, through the power of his word, can transform your life, yes, even your life and even my life, by his spirit at work through the word in our hearts so we can experience the hope of eternal life. Listen to these words from uh, John Stott. He says this, We too, although we're not apostles should have the same vision and ambition, namely to cultivate in the people of God the faith which lays hold of God and of his Christ, the knowledge of the truth which issues in godliness, and the hope of eternal life which has been promised and guaranteed by God. Friends, you will know that there'll be many people who've gone to church today who will have left church lacking in confidence But Paul writes these words to Titus. So even though none of us knows what tomorrow will bring, we can have the sure and certain hope of eternal life through the faith and knowledge that God provides to us through his word. A word which is ministered to his people, by his people, but specifically, as we're going to see now, through their leaders. Through their leaders. And that brings us on to our second and final heading, the commission that Titus is to fulfill. And this is verses 5 to 9. Let me just read verse 5 to us. So he writes to Titus, The reason I left you in Crete uh, was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Paul was one of these sort of strategic uh, leaders, and his strategy, uh, which probably wouldn't pass muster today with any strategy consultants, was that for the health of the church in a hostile culture, and when faced with false teaching, the strategy is this, appoint godly leaders. Get good leaders, appoint elders who will shepherd the flock as they build up the sheep, and as they protect them from the wolves. As John Stott writes in his commentary on 1 Timothy 3, uh, commentary on 1 Timothy, uh, referring to chapter 3, he says this, the health of the church 
depends very largely on the quality, faithfulness, and teaching of its ordained ministers. Well, let's dig into this now in verses uh, 6 to 9. The elders that Titus was to appoint uh, would have been senior, or we could say experienced men from within the congregation. The clue, I suppose, is in the name. They're to be elders and not youngers. And it's from this word for elder that we get the word which you might also have heard of, uh, presbyter. And that word is used interchangeably for, for the word bishop. In fact, that's the word that Paul uses in verse 7. You'll see it there, uh, since an overseer, that he uses that word there rather than elder. So you've basically got these three titles. You've got an elder, you've got an overseer, you've got a, you've got a bishop. It's all the same category of leader. Now, elsewhere in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy 3, for example, you've got another category. It's the category of deacons. So the New Testament has two categories uh, for leadership within the church. You've got the elders and the overseers here, and then you've got the deacons here. Uh, Bishops, as we understand them as an Anglican church, they come much later on out of this pot, and they've tended to be a nuisance ever since. But for the moment, you've got elders and deacons and overseers as the same group. Now, Now, this elder overseer... Notice with me, is not to be a lone ranger. Have a look at uh, verse 5. Paul tells Titus to appoint elders plural in every town on Crete. And that was practice. We read on in Acts 14, verse 23, this was the practice Paul had adopted in other churches, a plurality of eldership set apart to lead local churches. And this, sadly, is another way that the Church of England doesn't help us. The Church of England, you see, has a model of an elder or pastor, people from this category here, or what some refer to as a priest, which is even more unhelpful as a term. And that person does all the work. And sadly, that leads to a very unhealthy clericalism. But healthy church leadership has a plurality of elders who are primarily going to serve the church as they lead the church through teaching the church the word of God. Or as we read on, for your notes, Ephesians 4 verse 12, the pastor teacher is to prepare God's people for works of service. Now whilst it will take a variety of skills to lead a church, like it does for running a family, The chief business of this elder overseer, as we read there, down in verse 9, is an ability to encourage others by sound doctrine, which means teaching them. We'll just glance your eyes one column over to chapter 2, verse 1. He writes, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. So in contrast to the false teachers of verses 10 to 16 that we'll see next week, that these people who are teaching incorrectly, these overseers, these, these elders, they've got to have an aptitude and a gift to teach the word of God. Godly leadership will be exercised through a ministry of the word. But, but, big but coming. As we read on in verses 6 to 8, being a church leader is always far more than just being able to teach. 
Sadly, in recent years, there have been scandals uh, within evangelical churches and churches of all shape and size and flavor, which has painfully exposed when teaching has replaced a godly character. Giftedness has trumped Christ-like character, which has been, sadly, and will be disastrous. And so what we have in verses 6, 7, and 8, we're given various godly characteristics that is to be found in any leadership profile that a church prepares for when looking to appoint elders. I don't think it's an exhaustive list. There could be far more added here. But I think it touches on the key areas of Christian discipleship and therefore relevant to us all uh, and what is to be exemplified in our leaders. We can look at them each in turn, but just notice, twice we get this word in verse 6 and 7. We read a frightening word for any of us who aspire to leadership within a church, and it's the word blameless. Blameless. Did you see that? An elder must be blameless, and then verse 7, he must be blameless. Now, fortunately for Rob and the church wardens, none of whom I noticed are here this evening, that's okay, Um, and for the rest of us who aspire to leadership within the church, maybe as a home group leader, uh, for example, blameless does not mean perfect. Paul was far from perfect. Blameless doesn't mean faultless, but it rather has this sense of being unaccused. So so candidates for church leadership must be people of sort of unquestioned integrity, or we could say above reproach. And the elder is to display this blamelessness in three particular areas. Let's touch on each. So first, it's their family life in verse 6. Let me read verse 6 to us. An elder must be blameless, unaccused, that is, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Now here, I think the emphasis is on the potential Christian leader's faith being evident in the home, behind the front door. You see, the Christian leader, you can't be something in public that you're not in private. There there must be a consistency of life. If Jesus Christ is Lord of all, Jesus Christ has got to be Lord of all in the public and in the family. So there's going to be order, discipline within the home. Now, I don't think these verses, though, disqualify a single man from being an elder. Jesus was single. Paul was single. I also don't think it means that you you can't be an elder until maybe your children have been confirmed or made it to youth group seven out of eight Fridays or, or finally made it into a home group. However, I think the principle that he's establishing is that, look, if you're seeking to lead the church, which of course is the family of God, the household of God, by teaching them the word of God, so you will have first been doing that in your own home. Do you see, there's that consistency. Which of course, though, is no guarantee of success. A number of ministers, like a number of people in our church family, They carry a very great burden and sadness of having children who are currently not walking with the Lord, despite of prayers and faithfulness and bringing children under the sound of God's word. So we've got to keep praying for our children, the children 
of our church family. And let's pray particularly, I think, for the children of our church leaders. It is a great tactic of the devil to attack clergy homes. So first, you're to be blameless in the family life. Second, the elders to be blameless in their private life. Their private life. Let me read verse 7. Since an overseer, an elder, is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Whether it's sex, or speech, or alcohol, or money, whether it's temper or emotions. There is to be a steadiness, a faithfulness, a discipline, a control, a Christ-likeness that is to be evidenced in the life of the aspiring church leader. You see, any candidate for Christian leadership, they should be the sort of person who's, who's, um, who's got their stuff together. Their life is under control, under the control of the Lord Jesus Christ. We used to live up in uh, southwest London, uh, and it was very common to see uh, uh, multiple uh, dog walkers uh, walking multiple dogs. You know, people in southwest London are so posh, they buy a dog and they pay somebody else to walk the dog. Okay, so you'd see these dog walkers walking their dogs around Wimbledon Common, and the dog walker might have six, seven, eight dogs on, on a lead, on a leash. Uh, and all was fine until you let go of the leash and the dog runs off and it's all carnage and panic and we're all having a laugh. So I think the areas of sex and speech, and alcohol and money and temper and emotions, we've got to ensure that Jesus has got firm control of those areas of our lives. If they're not, then we're probably not yet ready for leadership role within the church. We all make mistakes, don't get me wrong. The Christian life is a life of repentance and faith. But is there a steadiness? Is there a settled desire to be growing, to be more like Jesus? Will we allow him to have every area of our life under his rule? So we have the family life, the private life. Finally, we've almost finished. We have the public life in verse 8. Let me read this. So we read, rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. In verses 7 and 8, Paul uh, employs 11 terms, five negative, six positive, all of which in the Greek are single words. And the leading thought, which applies them all, applies them all, and occurs twice in verse 8, is this, that the elder must be master of himself, or they must be self-controlled. They must be disciplined. And, and discipline, you'll know, is, is that final fruit of the Spirit. So all who aspire to leadership within the church, they must be giving visible evidence to others in their behavior that they have been and are being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, that their new birth has led to new life, that their fallen passions are under control, that the ninefold fruit of the Spirit has at least begin to appear and then ripen in their lives. And notice with me, we've almost finished, verse 8, it begins with hospitality. Did you wonder why that is? Why has the church leader got to be hospitable? Well, I think hospitality means welcoming others into their home, sort of entertaining both church members and, and visitors. 
And obviously, when you do that, you're allowing people to, to look behind the front door to see how you are with your wife and your children, to get a feel for who you really are. When you have someone into your home, it changes the relationship. Significance, isn't it? Our church leaders need to be vulnerable and prepared to open themselves up to scrutiny. So family life, private life, public life. Areas of discipleship, verses 6 to 8, that matter for us all. And this is really relevant to us all because leaders in churches are no more than the fruits of those churches. And whilst we might be sitting there this evening thinking, well, this is good, isn't it? I'm, I'm not going to be a church leader. I'm not going to be the next church warden. I'm not going to lead a church plant to the other side of Basingstoke. Actually, these are relevant to all of us because they're no more than living like Jesus did. He was the one who is perfectly hospitable. He was the one who loved what is good. He was the one who is perfectly self-controlled, upright and holy. And therefore, as his people, what does he expect of us? Be holy, because I'm holy. Today's a very significant day, or it was going to be, because the Ashes Cricket series was coming to its climax uh, this evening. It's been rained off this afternoon, so maybe it'll finish tomorrow. If you are passionate about cricket, like I can see most of you are not in this room this evening, um, if you get some withdrawal symptoms in the coming week, there's an excellent series on Amazon Prime called The Test. And it's a fly-on-the-wall documentary that follows the Australian cricket team. And, and John T. our youngest, and I watched some of the second series last week. And this is why I'm telling you this story. One of the episodes came with the title, You Can't Be What You Can't See. And it followed a particular member of the team who was a Muslim-born man from Pakistan who'd come to Australia when he was four. And there was a second player who was an indigenous Australian, only the second indigenous Australian to play for the Australian cricket team. And the premise of this episode was that to broaden access to cricket, to men and women, um, uh, from all sorts of backgrounds in Australia, you needed to tell the story of these two men because you can't be what you can't see. And I think that fits well with church leadership. The church, we desperately need leaders like the Lord Jesus Christ, whose lives we're able to see and to then emulate. And so as a church family, we need to pray for and prepare godly leaders whose belief and whose behavior commend the gospel, for we can't be what we can't see. So let's be praying for our church leaders. The way to spike the guns of false teachers, the way to grow healthy churches, is by appointing godly leaders. That's the start of Titus. We're going to come back to him in the coming weeks. God offers us the hope of eternal life through the preaching of his word, Thank you for your questions. There's some really great ones um, that come in, so thank you. Um, I've forgotten where we said we were going to start, but so I'll start with the one that came in first, if that's all right. Um, So the first one that came in uh, said, It's all well and good saying we can remain hopeful, but despite the hope I've got for eternal life, it doesn't give me hope for my mortal life. Hmm. Um, Before you answer, Rupert, if it's all right, I just want to say... 
If this is a particularly deep hopelessness or despair that you're speaking from, please don't keep that to yourself. Uh, thank you for your question. Um, do come and have a chat with, with me, or uh, if, if, perhaps if you're a woman, come and chat with Caroline after the service, or someone that you trust in the church family. Uh, don't keep that to yourself. Mm. But, but, but I'm guessing that perhaps it taps into um, how you started us off in the service, uh, yeah. thinking about hopelessness as we look around the world. Yeah. Um, how, how would you answer that question, Rupert? Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I mean, life is really tough, isn't it? And, I mean, I'm yet to find somebody who says they find this life easy. Uh, and the hope of eternal life is one of the great gifts that God has given us in the gospel, that we have a sure and certain hope. Hmm. And yes, we have a sure and certain hope beyond the grave. And that is why, as a Church of England minister, it's a great privilege for me to take the funerals of men and women who've died trusting in Jesus. And yet, I think we can just think that hope is for them, or, yeah, for them. And actually, from John 17, verse 3, knowing God, that is the hope of eternal life. And that can begin now. And so no matter what I'm facing tomorrow or this week, uh, I, I can know his presence in my life. I can pray to him. I can know the, his love mediated through his people. So no matter what challenges uh, we're going through, and I don't want to minimize for anyone in this room this evening, uh, knowing him, uh, it totally transforms that, those times of sufferings. <laughs> So I want to say that hope of eternal life, it is for the future, but it starts now as we know God through Jesus. Mm, absolutely. Thanks, Rupert. Um, we've got a couple of questions that, that are quite interlinked with one another. So um, what we'll do is, is we'll answer one of them, but I'll read out the other as well. Mm. Um, so uh, uh, how are church elders to be held to account? Recent examples, uh, mm. you mentioned some of them, uh, seem to demonstrate failures in the systems and the yes. governance and leadership. Yes. That's sort of linked to the question. There's another one talking about how do you know what's going on inside and when people seem to show true colours later on. Sure. How would you yeah. respond to that? Are people allowed to keep voting? I think, it's, I uh, think they are. It's, it's, it makes it ping around on my screen. It's very confusing. <laughs> okay, so I think the... Um, so the, how are elders to be held account? This comes back to the plurality of elders, you see. If you just have one lone ranger operating on their own, they go rogue. That's, that's mm. the painful truth. And yet if you have a plurality, i.e. more than one, I suspect three is the minimum and going up from that, then there is this accountability within the group. Now, the problem, the problem is um, often we have operated with a hierarchy within eldership which again is, is very unhealthy and it, it tends to this clericalism. So I'd say the main way of accountability is through a plurality of eldership. And, and yet those, the churches still go wrong with a plurality of eldership, don't get me wrong. And yet it is, it is being held to account by the word of God. That mm. is our arbiter and allowing that to be changing us. And, and having the courage of our convictions to point things out when elders are doing things they shouldn't be doing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. From, from anyone, not just from other elders, but from within the church family. Absolutely. And, and potentially some of what we see next week will tap into that question of, sure. of what does it look like when things go wrong yeah. as well. So come back next week. Um, okay, let's go for our top voted question. Yeah. Um, why does Paul say that only men should be elders? Or yeah. is that the translation being misleading? Yeah. We know there was at least one female deacon, Phoebe, from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Sure. 
Great question. And obviously, I've been expecting this question all day as I've preached it. Mm. So, the, uh, Paul is really clear that uh, men and women are equal in God's sight. We are equal in, the, in his love for us. There is equality within the church through creation. And yet there is a difference of responsibilities that he gives within us, gives to us men and women. And I suppose this culturally is one of the areas where the Bible, the rubber really hits the road. Because what I'm about to say sounds offensive to our ears. But Paul writes that leadership, this teaching of the word of God, is for the elders. And as we've seen this evening, it is clear that is to be men. And yet that is not to say that women are not to exercise um, a leadership within the church. Because, as the question says, we have Phoebe, who was a deacon. And this second, this other category, not second, sorry, this other category, uh, the deacons, uh, are open to male and female. Now, in Titus, uh, let's go one step further, because in chapter 2, women are to have a teaching ministry. And chapter 2 is really clear of the role of women teaching women and children. And I think, from my perspective, and uh, I don't want to embarrass her this evening, but, but Caroline is one of the best enabled Bible teachers I know. And I've said that for 20 years. And she exercises her gift in the way that Titus 2 beautifully says she should. Now, there's other people who would want Caroline teaching us more and more. And I've often been in that category. <laughs> but I think the New Testament is clear. Now, that is not to say that anyone in this church is less or greater than the other. We are equal, but we have different roles. And it's really important because in 1 Timothy 3, or in 1 Timothy, the picture of the church is of a family. And families operate really well when God brings a husband and a wife together. So I, my wife has great strengths and I have great weaknesses and we need each other in our family for bringing up our children but for doing other things as well. And I want to say it's that same picture in the church. We are equal and yet we have different roles. But we can talk more about that after. Mm. Absolutely. Or with Caroline. Yeah. <laughs> great. And again, keep coming back. We're going to get to chapter two. Yeah. Um, final question, final question. Um, do you think church leaders struggle with guilt for their failings? Um, how do you advise us all to avoid being burdened with endless guilt, even when we know we're forgiven? So I guess it's yeah. sort of two questions in one, isn't it? Yeah, but... yeah. I mean, friends, this has not been an easy week for me to prepare this talk, because you read through six, seven, and eight, and uh, I feel a complete failure on most of it. And, and that's why we should be praying for our church leaders, because none of us are perfect. Only Jesus mm. was perfect. Um, and, and yet that struggle with guilt is a struggle that we will all feel, whether we have a position of leadership within the church. And the Christian life is a life of repentance and faith, daily repentance and faith. Mm. I say sorry for my sins. I come back to the cross. I'm assured of God's forgiveness, his spirit present in me, and I get up and I go again. And I think, actually, for Christian leaders, they need that robustness, that gospel robustness, uh, to help them with that. Um, to, to, to feel 
endless guilt is, is, I would suggest, an intolerable burden. And if you're visiting us here this evening, the message of the gospel is of one who says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Mm. And, and what he's saying in Matthew there, he's saying, I will take the guilt for all your sins, past, present, and future, on myself. And that is liberating. And that enables you to live. Yeah. Amen. Thank you so much, Rupert. Pleasure. Um,